Hello, listeners. I'm coming to you from Indianapolis at our annual meeting. So this week, we'll have a replay of one of our popular episodes, Ankle Arthroplasty, Where is the Love? I hope you enjoy a repeat listen, and we'll be back with new material next week. The Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back, listeners. Dr. Jason Patterson is an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in foot and ankle, and he recently gave a talk at our Phoenix meeting titled, Ankle Arthroplasty, Where is the Love? Okay, Dr. Patterson, who is the typical patient that gets ankle osteoarthritis? And along those lines, what's the takeaway for our providers that are managing ankle sprains and ligament laxity? Why is it important to manage those appropriately? Ankle osteoarthritis is different than shoulder, hip, and knee in that the patients that typically get it are usually patients that have suffered an injury. So hip and knee and shoulder arthritis is typically the result of genetics. And, you know, I I tell patients, bad luck. Uh, You're going to get it no matter really what you do or don't do. But ankle arthritis is different. Most patients that get it, they've usually suffered some type of injury or trauma. And sometimes all all it is 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 an ankle sprain or two that then led them to have constant ankle instability. And over time, that starts to wear out the cartilage and the ankle, and, and then they get osteoarthritis of the ankle. Occasionally, we'll see rheumatoid arthritis and, and just primary osteoarthritis, but oftentimes it's what we call post-traumatic arthritis, where they've suffered an ankle fracture, lower leg injury that, that then damaged the cartilage, and once it's damaged, the arthritic process starts. And just to kind of back up, I think, I think a lot of people um, don't even truly understand what arthritis is. They, they sometimes think of it as like a and an infection, something that can spread or grow. But arthritis, really all it means is that there's inflammation of a joint. And so when we talk about osteoarthritis, it usually means inflammation of a joint that's deteriorated the cartilage or the smooth part of the joint. And now the joint just doesn't function as well. It has stiffness, it has pain. Uh, and like I said, often it's a result of, of trauma when we're dealing with ankle arthritis. Okay. What are some non-operative treatment options for ankle arthritis prior to arthroplasty? Yeah, I think one of the most important things we can do is prevention. You know, I think there's no cure for arthritis, really, of any joint in 2023. Uh, you would think that this this being the most disabling disease in America, maybe maybe worldwide, but definitely America, that we would have some type of cure. Uh, but as of now, the only cure is, is surgery. So I think prevention. So I tell patients when I see them just for simple ankle sprains, make sure you get it treated properly, that I'm aggressive with booting these injuries, getting them into physical therapy to make sure that their uh, ankle sprains don't progress to osteoarthritis. But when I see patients that already have osteoarthritis or degenerative joint disease of the ankle, I I will certainly try non-operative treatment. Probably the most successful is cortisone injections and bracing. The ankle is very amenable to to an ankle brace. Um, Cortisone injections, although I get questions every single day about how safe they are. And there's lots of information on the internet online about how um, problematic cortisone and steroids can be. I think people are, are mixing up the indications with cortisone and prednisone in general versus a cortisone shot in the ankle. Cortisone injections in the ankle are extremely safe. They're very effective. 
you, I, I usually will do up to three or four a year, as long as they are working and, and effective. If they only last for a week or two, then I think doing more shots doesn't make a lot of sense. But I have lots of patients that see me about every three to four months because they're getting shots and they're happy with the uh, the pain relief they get. And bracing, same thing. They'll, they'll wear a brace when they go out hiking or play tennis or pickleball and um, their pain's managed. Uh, other non-operative treatment would be oral medications, cane, walker, not real sexy options for most patients, but that's kind of the gamut of uh, options for people with ankle arthritis if they're wanting to delay or postpone surgery. All right, Dr. Patterson, ankle arthroplasty. You explained that the ankle is the most common joint for an arthroplasty in the foot and ankle. I was hoping to go through some of the considerations you have for ankle arthroplasty. You presented a slide at your talk that went over your considerations for doing an ankle arthroplasty and those considerations being much more extensive than, say, a hip or a knee. Yeah, so the ankle joint, I think this is some of the things we've learned over the years on how to have to make the implants more successful. Um, the, the talus is very small compared to, to, say, the knee or the hip. It's got a much smaller surface area than the hip or the knee, but it bears the same amount of weight and the same amount of stress when somebody walks or runs or jumps or hikes, whatever it is. So we got to take that into consideration. The ankle talus bone is wider and the anterior part of the front part. That's typically why the ankle is more unstable when someone is on their tiptoes or what we call plantar flex. So most ankle sprains usually happen when someone's um, in a plantar flex or a tiptoe type position. The design of the implants is trying to cover as much of that surface area of the bone as possible. So not only does it provide stability, it distributes the stress across the entire bone so that the implant will survive. The other challenge with the ankle compared to the hip or knee or shoulders is vascular supply. 70% of the talus is covered in cartilage and the talus bone is one of the bones that are that's involved in the ankle joint, the other one being the tibia. But the talus being almost entirely covered in cartilage, it doesn't have great blood supply. Blood can only enter a bone where there's not cartilage. So when you're doing ankle replacements, you've got to be real aware of where the blood supply is and not to, not to damage it. So I think this is one of those things, again, it's important to have it done by a surgeon who does a lot of ankle replacements. So they think about all these things, they're comfortable with the dissection and, and avoiding damaging the blood supply. If you, if you damage the blood supply to the talus, the bone can die, just no different than any other living tissue. If it doesn't get blood, it won't get the nutrients and it can actually die. And dead bone is called osteonecrosis, which is a recipe for disaster for an ankle replacement. And the implant won't mend to the bone and it'll collapse into the dead bone. The cartilage around the ankles is unique and different compared to the, the hip and knee as well. It's often thinner. So even though it has a smaller surface area, it's also not quite as thick as the, as the knee and the hip, which I think it makes it more prone to post-traumatic arthritis like we mentioned earlier. So it doesn't take much damage to not only disrupt the blood supply to the talus, but also damage the cartilage to where it starts becoming bone-on-bone -bone arthritis. You explained that some feel that arthrodesis is actually the gold standard for treating ankle osteoarthritis. In my experience, which goes back a few years, the early generation arthroplasties didn't do so well. Um, and you went over some of the mechanics of why this was the case and that newer implants have corrected some of this. When might you choose an arthrodesis over an arthroplasty of tibio-talar joint osteoarthritis? 
Yeah, now we're getting into the real controversial stuff. And I'm sure if some of my my partners or colleagues were listening, they they would have different thoughts and feelings on what I'm about to say. But that's, you know, that's okay. Um, I think when I first started practice nine years ago, arthrodesis or fusion of the ankle was considered by many to be the gold standard. I think just now in just a short eight or nine years, I think that's changed. I think most people now would probably feel arthroplasty is the gold standard or joint replacement is the gold standard. Uh, but I, I still think the majority of people even today would argue that a fusion or arthrodesis is the gold standard for many patients. And, and that, that patient population typically is going to be the younger patients, somebody maybe under the age of 55. Some people even use the age 60. And under 60, they should get a fusion. Other surgeons use 50. The patient I'm going to consider a fusion on is, is getting less and less every year. Uh, I think when I first started, I did maybe six or seven fusions a year, and now I'm probably down to like one. So I really have to talk myself into doing a fusion. I have to really rule out an, an arthroplasty for me to consider a fusion. I'm, I'm, like I mentioned before, I, I, I strongly believe joints are meant to move. I think when we fuse joints, I think that's could be a lazy way out, um, and it causes problems. You, you fuse the ankle, and it puts a lot of stress on the joints next to the ankle, the adjacent joints. So the subtalar joint, the, the TN joint, talonavicular joint, the foot, the knee even, and sometimes even the back, it can put more stress on all those joints and can wear them out. And we've, we've seen that in research that not more than five or 10 years after a joint fusion of the ankle, they have arthritis in all the joints around the ankle, which is a very difficult problem to treat. So if you have a stiff fused ankle and now you have arthritis in all the joints around the ankle, you know, patients feel like they're walking on a peg leg. And sometimes they, they would actually do better with an amputation than, than having that type of uh, arthritis problem. So I, I'm, I'm very cautious on who I fuse. I think patients who, who would do well with a fusion are those that have a history of infection in the ankle. You probably don't want to put a um, replacement with someone with a previous infection. Um, if they've had just such bad trauma that there's lots of bone loss, um, and it's not feasible to do a joint replacement, uh, then that may be a consideration for a fusion. But even those patients, there are new implants that we can make up for bone loss. And then finally, for me, probably the biggest one I'll do a fusion on are patients with what's called neuropathy, um, often diabetic neuropathy, where they just don't have the sensation in their, in their foot. Uh, a joint replacement to function properly and to work has to be well-balanced with ligaments, has to have good mobility. And someone with neuropathy is more likely to have a failure of a joint replacement. And so I'm a little more apt to fuse that joint. So those are those are just a kind of the, the short list of that. But I, I've um, the people with, with bad deformities of the ankles. I'm, I'm now doing more joint replacement and corrective procedures around the, the ankle to, to correct the deformity. Even younger patients now. Before, like I said, I'd use the age 60. Now, I think even someone in their 30s or 40s, I would consider an ankle replacement. A 40 year old, if you fuse their ankle, they're going to be in their early 50s and have arthritis and all the joints around the ankle, which, like I mentioned, is a very difficult problem to treat. I have not heard of distraction arthrodesis. Dr. Patterson, can you please tell our listeners what this is and how it works? Yeah, distraction arthrodesis is more just of historical nature. I don't know if there's many people out there doing them. I think this was developed by surgeons and, and done by surgeons who, who are trying to just avoid doing a joint replacement on a younger patient. So 
what you basically do is you scope the ankle, uh, clean up the arthritis a little bit, just try to debride some of the inflammation in there. And then you put them in what's called an external fixator, which is large stainless steel pins that go into their, their tibia and then in their foot that stick out the skin. And then you connect it by bars, uh, almost like an erector set, and you distract the ankle. So you actually pull the ankle and distract it and you leave it like that for three months. And so this pa the patient has to walk around with, with these pins sticking out of their leg and foot connected to the to bars and have their ankle distracted with the hope that it'll generate some kind of either new cartilage or, or scar tissue in there that'll help cushion the arthritis and prevent pain. But it's fraught, obviously, with complications, lots of infections from the pin sites. And it doesn't work. You know, that's, the, that's the main thing. The, the research shows it gives them maybe a year or two of pain relief. So to put them through that kind of procedure and recoveries is probably not worth it. So um, I've, I've never done it. I did it in training. I haven't done it since. Um, I think it's pretty much gone away. And can you please tell us about osteotomies and when these might be indicated in the treatment of ankle arthritis? Osteotomies is when you cut the bone and realign it. So when someone has a lot of deformity, maybe from a previous fracture, and it's caused their leg to be crooked, and their ankle to wear out asymmetrically, so they wore out one side versus the other, you could consider doing an osteotomy where you cut the bone where it's crooked and straighten it out, and that'll distribute the stress back on the healthier cartilage. So that's a, that's a very good option, I think, for certain patients. There's not many that that, that would be applied to, but I certainly I've done those, and I still do those, and I still consider those in some patients if we're trying to avoid doing a, a joint replacement or joint fusion. Okay, total ankle arthroplasty. Dr. Patterson, there are a variety of implants you discussed. A couple of questions. Do you use cement or no, or do you use stems or no? Yeah, so I, I think this is, again, we're getting into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of an ankle replacement and the controversy. There used to be only several implants out on the market, and now with the success of ankle replacements, there's a lot more options. So it's very surgeon dependent on what they prefer to do. One of the questions he asked is whether you cement the implant in or don't cement it. I think the uh, the knees are often cemented. You, you put a thin layer of cement between the bone and the implant, that'll secure the implant to the bone. Uh, for the ankle replacement, most of us, although this, this is still considered off-label uh, from the FDA, most of us, if not all of us, do not cement the implant in. The, the implant actually has a coating on the surface of it that's designed to allow bone to grow into it. So if you put cement on it, it won't allow the bone to grow into it. But when they were being researched through the FDA, it, it was done through cementing. So that's always just kind of been considered on label or FDA. So technically I think the majority of us, or if not all of us put in ink or replacements, quote unquote, off label. My opinion, that's much better. You want the bone to grow into the implant. I think it's much longer lasting than having cement. And if it ever has a problem, meaning gets loose or it gets infected, which is rare, but it can happen with a joint replacement, it's much better if you don't have a cement mantle to, to deal with to get out. The implant company I use does offer a stemmed option, which is very helpful for my practice. So if I have a patient with very poor bone quality, if they've had bone loss from, from previous fractures, if they've had bad deformity, then I'll often use a stemmed implant versus not a stem. That's just discussing a, a part of the implant that goes up into the tibia to provide more stability. 
and more options for bone growth. So I think all the other companies do not have a stemmed version and I worry about putting in an implant in osteoporotic bone or a patient that has very difficult deformity that does not have a stem. And I've seen, I've seen failures from that. So I like the having lots of options and I tailor the implant to the patient that I'm putting it in so that they're getting in my, what I think is the best implant for them. That's going to last them uh, their whole life. I give lots of talks now about ankle replacements. It's one of my passions. Obviously I, I, I love it. Uh, that's why I'm here talking about it. I, I, I think it's some of my happiest patients are my joint replacements. So I'll, I'll do it after fractures. I'll do it after patients have malalignment that they've had just failed non-offered treatment. And, and these patients that'll get these, these ankle replacements will come in and just, just grateful that we've, you know, we've changed their lives and given them their quality of life back. Uh, one of the questions I'll typically get those is how long will these last? And unfortunately no one knows. Um, I, we do know that if you put it in straight, uh, if you put it in properly, which typically is needs to be done by a surgeon who does a lot of these, that the more you do, the better you get at them for sure. Then we're hoping they'll last 10, 15, 20 years or more in the um, lab. They're they're lasting a very long time. And so we're hoping that that pans out. I'm part of a study looking at that exact thing. So we're hoping that the that the implant survival rate is gonna it's gonna be similar to knees and hips. But it can be revised. That's why, you know, we asked, we talked earlier about doing them in younger patients. That's why if it was me, you know, I'm in my early 40s. If it was me, I would, I would have an ankle replacement if I needed uh, something done over a fusion. Because I know that if it does wear out when I'm in my 50s or 60s, I can I can have it revised. And that's even in 2023. And I'm sure 10, 15, 20 years from now, the technology is going to be even better. So um, that's that's usually my go-to. And I will see patients maybe two or three a year that have had an ankle fused. And we can take down the fusion and put in an ankle replacement. So that is an option. And that's something I do. And those are also very happy and successful patients at 30 or 40 years of having a fused ankle. They get it. They get it replaced, and they have motion again, and and they're very happy. So, uh, it's just exciting to see where we've come with ankle replacements, and honestly, where we're still going. Uh, I think there's still there's still lots of lots that we can learn and do, and it's just it's just a cool option for many patients. Dr. Patterson, thank you for being on the Ortho PAC. For sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining the Ortho PAC podcast. We also welcome you to visit our website, paos.org, where members can download virtual conference content and get Category 1 CME. For non-members, please visit the aapa.org Learning Central for the PAOS virtual conference.